This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Malka Hayafenevesi and Aziza Hassan. Together, they co-direct New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change based in Los Angeles. I spoke with them on September 15, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. They were in the studios of NPR West in Culver City, California. This interview is included in our program, Curiosity Over Assumptions. Interreligiosity meets a new generation. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Hello? Hello? I brought an extra copy of this, if it's helpful to you at all. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I hope it makes sense. That's smart. I was like, I've been trying to stay small, but now I'm starting to feel it. Hello? I tried to fit it onto one page, and I couldn't, so I just embraced it. Nice. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Hello, can you hear us? Yes. Oh, good. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Hi, this is Aziza. Hi. Hi. It's Krista. Hi, so nice to meet you. You too. <laughs> I'm glad we finally made this happen. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been fans for ages, oh, and we good. were so excited when we saw you at the IFYC conference two years yeah, ago. Yeah, wasn't that a great event? Absolutely. I came to your session. I was sitting in back. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, what an great. honor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, don't worry about the cough button because, uh, I mean, you can if you want to, but we're going to make you sound great. We have digital editing and we could all use digital editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, say, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo. Mitch, do you hear that? Um, do you think that's headphone volume still? Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, one or both of you can just turn your headphones down a little more. Krista, keep talking. Okay. Um, I would love... I No, I'm still hearing it. Sometimes it's a little tricky with... Now I think it's gone. I think, we, I think you cracked it. I think some, maybe the door was open? Mm. Was there a door open? It was. Somebody was fixing the mics. Oh, okay. Now, I'm still hearing a little bit of an echo. Yeah, is it possible to turn your headphones down even more? My right one is totally off, and my left one is a little bit on. Okay. You yeah, mine are pretty far down now. You, um, hmm. Yeah, you need to still be able to hear yourselves and hear me. Um, maybe that's... Maybe are, that's are you getting no, a little bleed, no. Minnesota? Yes. Yeah, I can hear it, actually, myself. Mm -hmm. Okay, stand by one second. Uh, I was adjusting their microphones just a few seconds ago, okay. so you might have heard a little bumping. Is that better? Um... I think it is, actually. I think that's gone. Yeah, the echo's gone now. Um, I would love for um, each of you to say your name, your whole name, so that I'm, so that I say it perfectly. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm Aziza Hassan, mm -hmm. and I'm Malka Haya Fenavesi. Okay. Um, Mitch, can we go, or do we need to? All right, we're not ready. Minnesota, are you still hearing a little bleed? No, I think it's gone now. Thank you. Okay. Um, Mitch, do you need to hear what they had for breakfast again? Or are we all right with that? I need something, uh, anything. How about what they are going to have for lunch? Okay. Uh, what are you going to have for lunch? 
This isn't totally a fair question. It's Ramadan. I'm oh, going to talk sorry. about. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I knew that too. <laughs> I mean it with love. I mean it with. I apologize. Talk yeah. about the fact that. I'm going to blame Mitch for putting that question in my ear. right. How about Iftar? His favorite park, and I felt very guilty not bringing her to the studio this morning. You sorry? Well, I didn't hear the beginning of that. We're right next to my dog's favorite dog oh, park. Oh, oh, And right. I felt a little... She kind of looked at me this morning. Mm-hmm. I apologized, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I felt guilty about it. I'm going to... I'm not sure. Now, who is that speaking right now, just then? That's Malka. That's Malka. Okay. Aziza, let me hear you say something. Okay, how are you going to break your fast today? Do you know? You know, I'm not quite sure, but I'm usually very picky when it comes to, like, finally being able to eat at the mm-hmm. end of the day. So I'm sure I'll think of something. Okay. Um... You know, have you? We've been doing this Ramadan podcast. Have you heard it or heard about it? I have. It's been it's really exciting. It's been just absolutely amazing. like it's yeah. it's amazing how much work you've done. Like there's so many different stories. Yeah, but well, we were interviewing people anyway for this project. Uh, we're a, kind of a larger qu- uh, query on Muslim identity, and we're going to put that uh, create a program from that a couple weeks from now. But everybody had these beautiful stories to tell about Ramadan. It was just incredible. Mm. It was like one after the other. So then. When we decided to turn it a pod, into a podcast, we had to go out and collect 30 Ramadan <laughs> stories, but it wasn't, it's not, it hasn't been a problem. It's been really great. That's really good. Yeah. Um, you know, if I could just hear both of you talking at the same time, just for a volume level. Okay, I have no problem speaking as Marcus <laughs> I mean, talking. Speak the, I loved the, I loved yeah. all the different snippets of stories with the I Ramadan. I guess it's really hard to kind of talk while you're talking. Podcast, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Actually, you're, you're, really, you're good interrupt. at this. Yes, no, right, you're exactly. really good at this. You're good at just continuing on saying what you're saying and not being distracted by the other person. <laughs> okay, Mitch, can we do it? Sorry. All right. I don't like to have. I don't like to start to have any real conversation before we start. You know, mm-hmm. and talk about mundane things because then we're going, and I want to make sure it all gets captured. Um, so I would like to start just for a little minute uh, with each of you individually, and then we'll get into our um, three-way conversation. Um, and let's maybe just do it in alphabetical order. Maybe start with you, Aziza. Just. Um, Tell me a little, you know, just let's just learn a little bit about you. You grew up, <laughs> I read, in Jordan and Kansas. Now tell me about that. What was that trajectory? Well, I, I think I had a really exciting childhood. Um, I was born in Jordan. My mom is Caucasian uh, Christian and maintains her Christian identity. And my father is Palestinian and Muslim. Mm-hmm. And while growing up in Jordan for a good 17 years, um, I was constantly faced with that question, um, what are you, Muslim or Christian? Um, aren't, isn't one better than the other? Right. And even like the questions about, um, you know, your mom's going to hell, how do you feel about that? Um, and so I spent so much time praying as a child, you know, oh, I want my mom to go to heaven. Mm. And then we moved to Kansas. And, um, and how you know, old Kansas were you? Completely when you, different place. Wait, how old were you then? I was 17. Okay. Um, and when we moved there, all of a sudden, like, uh, we had great neighbors, but they all thought that I was going to hell and my mom got to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things got flipped. And it was, you know, an answer to my prayers, but it wasn't exactly what I really wanted. Okay. Um, and it, so it really forced me to think about why I believed what I believed and this exceptional view of theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's definitely molded the way I think and and why I believe in the power of interfaith 
not not only like work but um, a connection to each other through story. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did did your mother make a decision that, uh, with your father that you would be raised Muslim, or was that a choice you made, or do you think it's because you were growing up in Jordan? You know, they actually made a choice. Like mm-hmm. pr- prior to getting married, um, they had agreed that they would raise the children a Muslim. But at the same time, we still attended um, church every Wednesday night um, and uh, Bible study classes and held, you know, uh, all sorts of different celebrations at our home, whether it was Christmas or Easter. Mm. Um, So we we still maintained all the rituals and the celebrations and the stories. Mm -hmm. I actually grew up on Bible stories. And till this day, I still have to look up stories in both Muslim and Christian tradition to make sure I'm separating the two. (laughs) Right. Because there is overlap. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then you, but look, okay, so let me just ask you this then, when you went to Kansas, I mean, did you, was your Muslim identity um, just really established then? I mean, was there any thought in your mind um, that you might be more Christian or investigate that? I'm just curious about that. Well, I mean, when we went to Kansas, um, it was also uh, right after I had uh, lost my father. Um, he had oh. passed away from a heart attack. And, you know, I was... I was very strong in faith just because of my mourning process, I um, and I needed faith as, as a place where I could retreat to, where I could be safe um, and, and hide away from my own pain. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, because I had associated also with the Muslim faith, um, I mean, that was my, that was a place I could go to be, to be, you know, away from the world and, and everything else. Plus, I didn't really like the idea of moving to Kansas to begin with. So <laughs> okay. my poor mother put up with a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you were the first Muslim student body president at your college, at Bethel College. Yes. What's that like? I, was, I can't imagine that there were many Muslims at all to begin with. So. No, there weren't. It seemed like we had one Muslim every, like, like each... Every four years, we would get a new Muslim. Um, so you would have one f- during the whole school year, I mean, during like one segment. And so um, it really, it was interesting because it was a small Mennonite school. Mm-hmm. And um, I still went to all the like Biffle, which is basic issues of faith and life. Um, and uh, so a lot of an and intro to um, religion. and But it was all from a Christian theological like philosophy. Right. And... I, I honestly, it helped me grow in my own faith because it helped me appreciate the things in Islam that also that I also discovered in Christianity. Um, so, becoming you know the student body president it was like um, a great, I think, achievement. But it, it showed that you know Bethel was willing to engage um, based on merit and not necessarily mm-hmm. on on theo- theology or religion. Well, right, and you became student body president because of your personality and qualities of leadership, right? And you happened to be Muslim, but it still must have been kind of a learning moment for many people. Oh, Just, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to think it was, you know, all merit, but I think like um, you know, we really like mixed in like a lot of humor and and made people laugh. Um and I I mean it just it was a learning moment in that, you know, we knew we could just focus on what needed to be done and not on uh, divisions between ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. And what was your major? It's actually history and conflict resolution. Oh. Uh, so like with social, social justice issues. Mm-hmm. And it started out with global peace and justice um, and then realized that 
there wasn't very much um, in terms of applicability, so I focused on the mediation realm. Hmm, interesting. Um, and then how did you become kind of more formally drawn into um, interfaith work? So I think it first started actually in Jordan. Um, you know, my you know my mom being Christian, like we would still attend a lot of interfaith activities. Um, but after Jordan signed the peace accords in 1994, we did an exchange um, between the American school there and the um, international school in Israel, and we went between Israel and and Jordan, and it was the first time where we had like structured activities where we really needed were getting to know different people. Um, like it was actually my first experience in getting to know Jewish individuals. Right. Because before that, I the only Jews that I knew were in military fatigues, and mm. they were oppressing um, my father's people. Right. Um, and so, I mean, those those were the images that were stuck in my mind, and it completely shattered my world because, you know, I I not only got to know these youth, um, but I I realized that they were so much like me. They had needs like I did. Um, and just being in that um, kind of structured environment, I knew that that's, that's what I wanted to be, hmm. and that's where I wanted to go. So that you feel like that was really in the back of your mind um, as you grew older and through college? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, and then you go into college, and people were asking me constantly, like, you know, about Islam and why, you know, certain texts said this and why um, we believe that. And, um, and just, you know, constantly being the own soul spokesperson for the the religion which you know I tried to denounce every time I like talk to people um, but like it really forced me into the forefront and mm -hmm. uh, really needing to explore like um, this concept of pluralism and and not having to constantly agree in order to have a conversation mm -hmm. okay um Malka <laughs> you um, are first-generation American your parents were Hungarian immigrants, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So where did you grow up, actually? I grew up in Washington, D.C. And were you, you were born here? I was born here. Mm -hmm. And my, my parents uh, were born in Hungary and in Paris, respectively. And they came, my father came to the States in 56, like many Hungarians, leaving after the revolution, oh, right, who needed right. to leave after the revolution. Yeah. And um, my mother went from... Hungary back to Paris and they met in Paris in the early 60s and came back to the States together in 64. Is it right that they were Holocaust survivors also? Yes, so. they were children uh, during the war and my father was saved by a really uh, amazing woman who manufactured forged documents in the basement of an apartment building mm. in Budapest and uh, my mother was in Paris with her family who was Hungarian because it was somewhat of an easier place to be. Okay. And during the most intense bombings in Paris, she was sent to the countryside. So for your father, this was like a second second w exile um, coming to the U.S. Uh, in some, ha in having some ways to leave Hungary then after, after that experience. Um, so I think he was very relieved. To come to the U.S.? I think he was. Uh -huh. I think that he really, he was, he was really in a lot of ways... Um, in a lot of ways embraced, in a lot of ways just really, I think, was so thrilled to have the opportunity to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and really taken in by a lot of the different refugee services and scholarships. And he was, it was one of those very good coming to the U.S. stories. 
Okay, that's good. Um, and how did you then, um, so where, where did you study? You studied in Washington, D.C., didn't you? I got my graduate degree in Washington, D.C., or in, in Virginia, uh-huh. um, at George Mason University. And then I did my undergraduate work in Washington State at Evergreen oh. State College. Okay. And so what did you study? What were you interested in as you were growing up? Were you interested in this kind of, were you moving in this direction? Yeah. I was always interested. I mean, growing up in D.C., it's such a fascinating place to grow up because politics are everywhere, both kind of the local dynamics of D.C. as well as everybody who's there doing international work. It's a really a very exciting place to grow up and a lot of people coming from all over the world to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And so I was always interested in politics, but I was also really interested in, in hands-on change. So in college, I studied sustainable development, and I was really interested in how societies get rebuilt after conflict, mm-hmm. especially. Um, and I also studied political economy because I tried my hardest with the math, but was very interested <laughs> in how economics really really worked and how it really determined, um, how it really determined the way people live their lives. And was your, um, did you have kind of an implicit um, interest in the religious aspect of identity and conflict or even of some of these, of politics, um, or was that something that developed, was that a passion that developed gradually? I think I think it was a very innate interest for me mm-hmm. um, because because of my family and because of the people that I was surrounded with, I was very interested in the intersection of politics and religion and experience. So that was just there for you. It was just there. Mm-hmm. You know, I read an online questionnaire where you were asked what mo- motivated you to become involved in peace and conflict resolution, mm-hmm. and. Um, I thought you, you said something really interesting. You said, I've been part of social movements, environmental, peace and justice, etc., for many years that were all full of conflict. And I wanted to understand how conflict functions um, and what is dynamic uh, and potential solutions um, from the personal to the global scale. Now I'm paraphrasing. But, um, you know, I think that's such an important observation that so many of these movements that are about making the world a better place also... In, that that within them people get torn apart, that there's a lot of conflict in the best efforts. <laughs> um, I think that's a wise observation, sort of early in your career. Um, but it's it's paradoxical, you know? I'm not sure that a it, lot of people real, realize that. I think it's very paradoxical, and I think it's also so... Um, it's such a it's such a dance and it's such a confusing dance because I think I always wanted our movements to be reflective of the values that we wanted for the world. I wanted them to be full of equality and respect and joy right. and also smart political strategy and effectiveness. And I think that's really hard to try to do both at the same time. And um, I found that it was it really it really hurt people's lives and I found that it didn't people weren't able to stay in the movement for the long for the long dance hmm. because because of how um, because of internal conflicts and really difficult internal dynamics I also felt like there wasn't always the opportunity to have the larger thoughtful conversation about what was going on in the world and I think that's really what drew me to do the work of new ground mm-hmm. and to do this work is that we need to understand why we do what we do and we need to understand how it impacts us and how it impacts our neighbors and I think that sometimes in the rush of certain social movements it's hard it's hard to take that step back it you know and it's also this just points at 
also I, what I just think is the core paradox and especially very baffling for outsiders of faith and the difficulty of interfaith <laughs> encounter that, that here you have these traditions uh, in which people live to find their ethical basis, right? Um, and these are traditions of service and presumably of our best values, and yet there's so much that is fraught in uh, this process of encounter, or even just mm-hmm. in faith expressing its best self. Um, yeah, and it does seem paradoxical, I think. But you, you two are right inside that paradox, aren't you? Very much so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you think about this a lot, the irony of it? Or do you just live it? Do you just go with it at this point? I think it's, I think we think as we move through it. Mm-hmm. I think that the, I think that it's hard. It's, again, the idea of taking a kind of a responsible and a thoughtful approach. We need to step back and say, wow, look at these dynamics. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Aziz is very amazing at giving me a window into her community often. And so I say, why, you know, explain this to me, please, because I just don't understand. So it's a real gift to have that partner in in the journey mm-hmm. and to be able to be able to ask those questions and I think that's something we very much try to um, try to infuse new ground with is mm-hmm. that people build those relationships and they have the people that they can call and say explain this, this is happening <laughs> yeah exactly uh-huh. why is this happening can you give me an example this may be hard but can you just think of a recent exchange like that where there was something one of you didn't understand that you just you needed an explanation I mean, I think we, um, to give the most recent example, we decided to do, this is actually from the winter around the conflict in Gaza and southern Israel. Mm -hmm. I think that our communities were so deeply in pain and so deeply in conflict with each other. And it was was very much falling on a local level in terms of local efforts were a part of here. And I would just call Aziza and I would say, so tell me, what did this sound like? to Muslim ears. You mean hearing the news today from Israel, from Gaza? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm. That and what did, you know, things that were happening locally in Los Angeles with the mayor and with other things, what did that sound like? How did that feel that the mayor said he would go to a mosque and didn't set foot in a mosque during that conflict? How did that, what was that like? And I can imagine and I can assume, but to really have someone on the other end of the phone to explain and someone who's really in the community... Um, and also just to just to say, you know, just to be able to reach out, I think is critically, critically important. Right. You know, because I was I was going to say um, there's a certain uh, maturity and a, a sort of an internal discipline, not just a spiritual discipline, but a, like a civic discipline in being willing to ask that kind of question and really wanting to hear the answer. You know what I'm saying? Really be open to listening to the answer. Yeah, because oftentimes we only want to, to speak and we don't actually want to hear mm-hmm. the answer. We're, we're not willing to really face the honest truth. Well, and my experience also in these past years, especially with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, is that um, they're often are two such very different narratives to describe the same events. I mean, it's true mm-hmm. historically, and it's true of things that are unfolding. So I'm just imagining, like, Malka, when you asked Aziza that question, you, you didn't really necessarily know. I mean, what you heard may have been so very much unlike what 
you know, what you were hearing, how, how that same story was landing in Jewish ears. Is that, does that happen? Is that true? I think, I think that definitely happens. I mean, I think, th- I'm sorry, there's some problem with my earphones. No. Can you hear? Now I can hear again. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I think it definitely happens. I think that there's a certain courage in being able to ask the questions, and I'm not trying to promote myself, but I think that that's something that with our fellows that we work with through through New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change, we really try to we try to say that it's the curiosity over assumptions. Right. Curiosity itself is a virtue. I like that. I, uh-huh. I think curiosity is so important, and I think that it can be... You know, it's so complicated for a lot of people to figure out how to be a Muslim or a Jew in America today that if we can go with curiosity over fear and curiosity over assumptions mm-hmm. and take that moment to really reach out to, to somebody else and and say, what does this mean to you? And how does this feel when this happens? And I heard this politician say this or I read this thing on a blog. And what does it mean? Absolutely. Like, I can't, like, r- emphasize enough, like, how well Maka number one asks mm-hmm. questions, but uh, how central it is to the success of the program. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, the 40 fellows that have passed through, um, we ask these tough questions of, and we ask them to ponder, reflect, and actually engage um, and talk to each other on them. Right. Um, she came up with a great idea um, when Ahmadinejad actually was invited to speak at Columbia. Oh yeah. Um, and 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 she asked the question. She was like, um, "If you were the chancellor, would you have invited him?" Um, and and uh, and actually a series of other questions. Um, and it was it led to a very incredibly rich discussion. Um, and and I think it's it takes skill and crafting the right questions so that people will also be willing to 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 take the time to listen and and answer it. And I think that that question about Ahmadinejad really struck the group. I mean, everyone sort of looked shocked for a minute. I remember, you know, so much of the core of what we do this is, is sacred- after also after he'd made his remarks and it was mm-hmm. so controversial and okay. Exactly. It was mm-hmm. after after he had actually spoken. And so much of what we do is we have a circle, a kind of sacred circle of chairs. And the people in those chairs are Muslims and Jews living in Los Angeles today and trying to understand what that means in every in every realm. And I think asking that question brought up such interesting, such interesting ideas about engagement. Who do we decide to engage with? Are we going to have conditional relationships? I'll talk to you if you say blah, 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 or mm-hmm. if you denounce this or if if it's about if it's really about an open door and what we heard from our fellows was really mixed and it wasn't along faith lines i think that um you know some people said of course this is about free speech and other fellows said no this is about giving a platform to hate and i think that um it's it's a really fascinating question about how open can the door be right so you're in Los Angeles, which is really an incredible place to be doing what you're doing. It's the third largest Muslim community in the U.S. is there and the second largest Jewish community. Um, I think of Los Angeles as this microcosm of globalization in so many ways. Um, and I know that Los Angeles also has a particular history with Jewish-Muslim relationships, which relations, which is quite interesting. That after the Oslo Agreement, there was a kind of a movement locally. There were dialogues, and that a lot of that disintegrated um, after, in as Oslo disintegrated, and also after September 11th, 2001. 
So I want to ask, you know, what are you doing that's qualitatively different um, that might, um, or, ha- you know, do you feel that you're doing something now that can withstand um, outbreaks of violence or that it even might withstand some kind of catastrophic events along the lines, you know, whatever that may have, might be of September 11th. Um, and if so, you know, what are, what are you doing differently? What do you think has been learned? Or maybe what does your generation understand that previous generations didn't? Well, for one, um, a lot of the relationships that um, were kind of came together and flourished um, prior to September 11 um, had conditional relation conditions attached to that relationship and so um, some leaders would say okay I'm I went if you denounce so and so then I'll stay at the table and you can imagine like it just kept going back and forth like a ping-pong match mm. um, denouncing different things and then finally one side decided um, they weren't going to denounce so the other side decided to walk away okay. um, and so what's really sad about that is that they allowed the outside world to completely um, base like to to control um, their relationships. Right. You know, I, I read in some newspaper reports of that someone wrote that Muslim-Jewish relationships um, were constantly held hostage to events thousands of miles away, which is an interesting, you know, pretty vivid way to put it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what what ha- what's been happening with Newground is that our organizations, Muslim Public Affairs Council and Progressive Jewish Alliance, really took a pretty, as I would say, chutzpahdik or very kind of risky move to partner together. And I think that that was something that hadn't really happened in Los Angeles with two organizations with large constituencies and with real power in the community said, we're going to do this. And whatever happens, we're making a statement that we're better in this together than apart. And I think that was a really big move in terms of Muslim-Jewish relations. I also think that we really focus on the grassroots. And while we really value and respect and learn a tremendous amount from our leaders, I think that, you know, the grassroots often felt left out of some of those conversations. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think bringing, bringing, bringing the grassroots in is really important. And in terms of how, I think, how new ground is really different than previous efforts, I think one thing that we really do is we wrestle with the elephant in the room, and I think that that's really important, and the elephant in the room being the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we don't let the elephant take us hostage, but we really say, what does this mean? But you don't pretend like it's not there. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And we do a weekend retreat with our fellows on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it happens after several months of relationship building and community-based education on our faiths and other dialogue work together. And you should, walking into that room at this retreat center, you can feel the anticipation in the room. You can feel that people have this nervous excitement um, sort of brewing in them to talk about this issue that they've been wanting to talk about. And then... I really, I remember the astonishment at some of the, the curiosity that came out when we asked the question, what is your personal connection to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Mm-hmm. You know, do you ever feel a conflict of values when you look at the conflict? Do you ever feel, you know, part of your heart torn in one direction, another part of your heart sort of torn in the other and find your, what does that mean? And we really wrestle with some of the hard words. We do a lot of work on language because I think that that's where our communities get themselves into trouble, that there's 
trigger words in this conflict and in this relationship that mean dramatically different things to different people. Right. And I heard the two of you um, at Ibu Patel's Interfaith Youth Corps convention, uh, I think it was about two years ago, um, talking about that, just about how to, about trigger words and about approaches of language and vocabulary. And, you know, that's very interesting. It's very nitty gritty. Um, so, I mean, give me some examples of what you're talking about. It's very practical, you know, rather than ceremonial, which I think a lot of interfaith work used to be. So picture, a, you know, a table in a somewhat dilapidated community center in Los Angeles with, with lunch paper bags on it that say occupation, Zionism, apartheid, Israel, Palestine, 1967, 1948, and what we have is a group of a group of people that have committed to building relationships with each other and committed to coming back and back to the table even when things are hard and they write down the first connotation that comes to their mind For about each of what those these words, words. mean. Okay. Yes, and it's all anonymous and then we make sort of a a museum to these trigger words where we write it all up on butcher paper as one of the bedrocks okay. <laughs> of our dialogue. <laughs> it's all up on butcher paper all over the room and people get a chance to look at these words and I think the shock at those words and how they can mean such dramatically different things to people and how they've heard those words throughout the course of their life and why did we choose these words and um, I think those are the words we're using now and I think that they would be different at another at another time. And one particular story was around we had I think I think this is also reflective of the larger community. We had some some fellows that really wrestled with the word Zionism, both Jewish and Muslim fellows that really wrestled with that word and how it had such a diversity of meanings to people mm. and how so many assumptions were made every time they heard that word in dialogue, if they read it in the newspaper, if they heard it on the radio, and to really unpack that and how to some Jews in the group it meant hope, it meant safety. And to some Muslims in the group, it meant it meant imperialism and it meant conquest. And where's the bridge between those two things? Right. And it, then one does it, what does it mean reading it in a newspaper in Los Angeles? And is there always a bridge? I think there's always a bridge. I think the bridge is about understanding. I don't think the bridge is about resolution. Mm. I think part of what it means to do authentic dialogue work is that it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> it's yeah, hang on just a second. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. Um, Mitch is saying, do you, if you have some water, you sound like you, Malka, especially you could use a glass of water. Do you have some there? Yes. Thank okay. You. Great. All right. Um. Okay. Yeah. Feel free to take a break. Um. You know, this is not live. We can edit. So if you need to pause for a minute, that's fine too. Um. Okay, this is great. Um, let's see. Um, I want to see where we were. Oh, yeah. We had, oh, yeah, the, so, all right. So the bridge, is, and here, let's just, let me just say, it seems to me from, from where I sit that if there's been kind of an evolution in terms of interfaith work um, or even just the way we approach pluralism, that there was a period when it, when it was so new in American culture, or at least knew that it was out on the surface and more diverse than just, <laughs> let's say, the you know presumption maybe different kinds of Christians and add Ju- Judaism into that. Um, that it was all about finding our commonalities, and it kind of st- often stayed superficial. Um, but what you're doing, um, 
you know, when you say that you're you're that you are looking for bridges, but you're not necessarily looking for resolution. And I think you know you're staying with that messy humanity um, of these tasks, but that also I think keeps it anchored close to the ground and to reality. And there's substance and depth there that can't be there when you're trying to force consensus. Absolutely. Um, when we're talking about like, especially like pluralism and just um, difference, opi- difference of opinions, it's the power of the personal that makes such a strong difference. Mm-hmm. Um, like in Malka's example about the word Zionism, like that was one heated word and actually carried all the way through and past the program. Because at, at the same retreat, we had one individual who was really wrestling with the term and he was really frustrated and he put a really negative and was he Muslim on, or Jewish? Yes, Muslim. he was Muslim. Um, and he, he viewed Zionism as uh, something that... Uh, uh, I'm at a loss for words. But yeah, he yeah. viewed Zionism... Yeah. As a negative force. Yeah, uh-huh. as a negative force. Um, and But it really hurt another Jewish participant who chose to hold on to her, her opinion. I see. Um, but it wasn't until months later at another session when she felt the courage to bring it up and say, look, what you said really bothered me because Zionism has meant so much to me as a Sephardic Jew. Um, and and to really, really wrestle with that. And so she, she really brought it back up and... Um, they were actually finally able to resolve the issue. So sometimes, you know, we create bridges, um, but it takes a while for people uh, to, to even be willing to exchange. To walk up what's, to them or even think yes. about walking across. Right? <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. I think what's important about that, too, is that we really, in the messiness, is that we really believe that conflict is actually really healthy. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, can be very destructive and painful, but I think it's also really healthy in terms of moving people and relationships and societies forward. And I think part of what was really beautiful about that moment, I don't know, six or eight months after the retreat, when this one fellow confronted another fellow about how that word and how his interpretation and his opinions had really hurt her, is that there was the safety of the sacred circle of chairs. Again, she chose to do it in front of the whole group. And it kind of spurred the next level of dialogue and the next level of conversation. And that commitment to keep on coming back to that circle and back to the table, I think, is tremendous. You know, sometimes sometimes, um, what is so simple is hard to get at. I mean, it's true in a marriage where two people love each other and have Mm. decided to spend their lives together that if they can't fight well, right, if they don't know how to disagree... Um, that has a bad effect on the relationship. Um, so, I mean, there's a way in which you're, you're learning some things that are just really basic to human relationship. Um, but there has been this crazy expectation of harmony um, where there's real difference. Oh, absolutely. And it also, um, one of the biggest struggles we actually face um, in terms of inside the circle of the program is also getting people to be honest and not necessarily polite. So (laughs) first we have to get them to be willing to engage in conflict in a positive and healthy way. And then we have to try to get them to actually like say what's really on their mind because they, after the, you know, they start building these relationships, they get really excited. Hey, we're getting along. I really like this person. Right. And then they don't want to hurt each other. And, but, (laughs) What they don't understand is that, you know, sometimes you have to be direct in order to really um, have a solid relationship. And it's it's our job, really, to push them to that to that corner. Um, you know, I, I wonder what you think of this. I 
I feel that the word interfaith or the adjective interfaith, even like the word pluralism, it, it doesn't convey... Um, it, these words are themselves are kind of safe and benign and maybe even boring, um, mm. when in fact, when people really have their hands and lives dug into this stuff, as you do, um, it's anything but. I mean, it's very dramatic. It's galvanizing. It's changing human life. Um, do you think about that, that problem of... Um, what the, of the words themselves getting in the way of communicating to the larger society what the power of this is. Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because <laughs> when we first started the program, that's how I would describe it. I would say, you know, this is an interfaith dialogue group, and it just wasn't deep enough. Yeah, and people it start to convey. fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we were like, I've been there, done that. I don't right. need to like do hugs and, and hummus. I need to, like, you know, if, if anything, I want to be part of something that's real. Right. Um, and so to be able to finally, like, understand the complexity beneath the surface um, and, and the importance of having honest conversations that deal with issues like identity and, um, and diversity of opinion and um, gender um, and so many other things, like, it, it just, it, there's so many other descriptors um, that you're right, um, I think do, do the, the cause much better. Uh, like justice mm-hmm. and we thought about yeah sorry go on we thought about this a lot in trying to come up with a name for the project because i think that again the words interfaith and dialogue do not hold the power and do not really fully express the depth and the meaning of the work that we do and yeah. that many other people do and i think that we we decided to call it new ground a muslim jewish partnership for change because the word partnership was really important mm-hmm. and that these two institutions mpac and pja were taking this leap together and the idea with new ground was we're establishing a new paradigm it's new mm-hmm. but we recognize the ground that we sit on mm-hmm. and we recognize all that we've learned from our leaders in the community and from everyone who has worked on this, who has been doing this work for a long time. And so I think we thought about those. We did. A, we thought a lot about language. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Are there other words uh, or phrases that you find yourself using to describe the work um, that, you use, that you find yourself using instead of interfaith or pluralism um, in addition defini- to ground? Yeah, new ground. Yeah. I, I definitely talk about transformation. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a is a is is the idea that as we transform conflicts and as we transform relationships, there's a grander transformation at work. And I I also think a lot about what one of our fellows, who's actually a rabbinical student right now, said to me, and he said, "I really feel like new ground is about what it means to be Muslim and Jewish in America today." Mm-hmm. And so that's not as short as pluralism or interfaith, but I think it it covers. It, there's something about it that really covers what we do. And so having, you know, s- established this, that that conflict, in fact, is a value for you or doing conflict right, um, that this is not just about um, forcing harmony. I, I do want to ask you, ha- have you t- do you talk about, do you think about what are some core virtues that may not be identical but that you... Um, as a Jew, as a Muslim, and your communities that you do draw on together, um, you know. Oh, absolutely. What, and what? Um, and so, what are you know? What are the most important of those that really out of which your work flows? Um, 
Well, we dedicate an entire session to um, the concepts of social justice and living faith um, mm -hmm. and to, to giving um, just as to healing the world. Um, because that is a very strong concept in in, in Judaism and in Islam. Mm, okay. um, and so that's actually our bridge into the next step, which is where we ask them to actually do something in the community to improve the community in, in, one, in a project of their choice. Okay. I think that's really important, the social change and social justice piece. I think the, again, going back to curiosity, yeah. I think curiosity is huge. Um, I think the ideas of reflection... Mm and responsibility and the idea of a very inclusive responsibility that um, our responsibility is to ourselves to our families to our own communities but also to all the broader communities and that's a it's a very big theme right now in the jewish month of elul mm -hmm. as we're coming upon the high holidays so that's also very much on my mind it seems to me curiosity um also is connected to valuing or to an openness and care for the other which is there at the root of all three of the monotheistic traditions which is really a value that our world needs but I and I think that say in the work the two of you are doing um, you are really cultivating that virtue um, I think you know unfortunately it's not what the three traditions are best known for, <laughs> right? It's certainly mm -hmm. not if you just if you just judge that by news headlines. But it's it is there certainly at the core of Judaism and Islam. Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, when we we quote several verses in the course of our, we have community iftars and and in our sessions. And you're right. Like one of the the Quranic verses is. Um, we have made of you nations and tribes so that you may get to know one another. Right. And then another verse after that says that um, in order to truly be a believer, you have to be willing to engage in diversity and pluralism and that that is the true sign. Um, and so and that's really what we drive home as part of the program. Mm -hmm. And Malka, what are you what are your kind of the Jewish connotations that are attached to that idea of the other? I, I think of a lot of things, I, I think both in terms of text, but I also think historically what the Jewish people's relationships have been to the other. And I think of the woman who was another, who was a Christian woman in the basement of an apartment building in Budapest who, you know, manufactured 3,000 mm. or so fake, fake documents for to save Jews. And I think of... Including your father. Thank God, including my father and mm -hmm. my grandmother and how how blessed and lucky that is and I think so I think of that sort of relationship to the other and and um, I think I think of Joseph and I think of his brothers and that being one of my favorite favorite stories um, it's not really a story but favorite <laughs> <laughs> favorite parts of um, of the Torah and what it meant to both be to both be related and to be othered at the same moment and to have that perception sort of change over time and I think of that reconciliation with his brothers and um, I think that otherness and think and I think thinking about the well-being of the other in addition to the well-being of your of yourself is is huge and I think that the the idea again of 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 how you sit at a table together and that's I, I I think that I think that that is the pluralism of it. How do you sit at a table who are with people who are vastly different than you? And I, 
I think of some conversations I've had with rabbis through the course of doing this work and how some of them who um, have said to me that this is the work that they did in the 70s and 80s between Jews and the African-American community Mm -hmm. and how this is sort of the evolving other as we as as life and time moves on and politics shifts and society shifts in different ways that we have to keep on building relationships across divides right that's interesting we did we did a program on abraham joshua heschel uh, mm-hmm. last year and and a piece of the conversation was that you know his he had such a very sophisticated theology of um and involvement with outreach to Christians and, you know, just speculating about how involved he might be and what what his voice would add to this challenge of Muslim-Jewish relationships in the 21st century. It's interesting to think about that. It is. It's interesting to think there's been some work being done on the Seder that never happened, that um, King was invited to Heschel's house for a Passover right. Seder. Yeah. And what, what would that Seder have looked like then and what would that Seder... I, I imagine and who would be I, invited today? <laughs> exactly. Who yeah. would I think? I think it would be fantastic Seder if it mm-hmm. happened today. I mm-hmm. think there would be a, a multitude of mm-hmm. people there. Heschel's a real a real prophet. Yeah. Um. So y- y- oh, you are both. You've been. In, you've both been involved um, to some extent, I believe, in um, a project. I think it's very interesting and exciting, and it's going to be fascinating to see it unfold. This twinning project between. Um, the Islamic Society of North America and the Union of Reformed Judaism. Um, but And I want to talk about that, but, you know, before I get into it, um, I want to ask you, Aziza, I, so I was looking at, um, looking at an introduction to this peacemaking initiative. I believe maybe it was from the ISNA site. And it was, it was a Muslim document. And, you know, right in the first few paragraphs... Um, there is a discussion of what peace means in Islam and a statement, um, a true Muslim does not commit acts of violence either for the spread of Islam or for the purpose of achieving power in the name of Islam. I know that um, all the conversation partners, the Muslim conversation partners I've had these past years, you know, people feel that's something you have to say. There's this, there's this statement of differentiating yourself from this violence that's been done in the name of Islam. And I just, you know, I just want to ask you about that because I think that must also enter into the kinds of dialogues that the two of you are involved in. And, you know, do you do you worry, Aziza, that you will forever have to preface every act <laughs> and every every good work and position paper, you know, with this kind of statement? Talk to me about having that as a reality. You know, I do. I It's, it's definitely a struggle, um, but something that I deem none of the less essential because without saying it, it seems like we can't really move on to getting into the real issues that are on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to discredit um, the fear that comes behind um, and the reasons why we have to why actually make those statements. Mm-hmm. Tell me, how old were you real. In, in 2001? How old were you? I was 21. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so I, I remember, because my TV was set as my alarm, and my TV turned on the very moment, like, when the... the the planes were crashing into the towers mm. and it was just it was I, I felt like ever my life was a daze ever since I woke up that morning mm. at least for a good chunk of time um, and it was it was definitely a scary time because you know my mom though she was Christian like taught at a Muslim school and so for 
weeks, we were constantly worried about um, boxes that were left randomly outside the mosque, whether or not they were going to be blown up, mm. um, and just living in that in that fear, um, just from a Muslim kind of story mm. or perspective. Um, and so, I I recognize that um, you know people are scared, and if people are scared, um, then we need to be able to speak to those fears. And so that's why I think, you know, lots of Muslim organizations are more than willing to say, look, um, anyone who commits an act of terror needs, to, or, or even breaks the law, needs to be held accountable and held to justice. And that's why we need to make these statements at the beginning of every conversation okay. by saying, like, look, we, we stand for justice and we will hold hold everyone to that same standard no matter whether they're um, Muslim or or from any other religion. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of hearing you say that you don't consider it, a, feel it as a burden so much as just a reality. Yeah, I mean, it's a frustrating reality, but one that exists nonetheless, and who am I to discredit someone else's fear? Mm-hmm. I don't know, Michael, do, how, do, do, you, do you feel yourself kind of involved in that struggle just because of your relationship with Aziza and with this work? I, I think I think it comes up with sort of painful assumptions that people have all the time. I was at a was at a dinner party and somebody asked me what I did and I said I you know I work with the Muslim and Jewish communities of LA and they said, Ugh, those communities, you guys deserve each other. <laughs> and I thought, wow, are we going back to this really sort of xenophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic tribalism? Mm -hmm. Like, is that really what people's first responses are to a really, I mean, what we do is very, is very hopeful and is very positive. And I think um, when I catch glances of what it is to be, um, I think, in in Aziza's shoes and what it is to be in a Muslim American shoes, I can imagine that having to have that caveat and that sort of precursor to everything um, must be very frustrating. And, and also, yeah, go on. I mean, I think that part of my question is, is that I, I really resonate with what Aziza said about, you know, who, who are we or who am I to, to discredit somebody else's fear. And I think what my hope would be is that this is, this is the place where we are in history right now, but that we can shift away from it and that we can transform away from these places of fear and these places of assumptions mm-hmm. into a, a more hopeful, a more curious place. And, and of course, there is, um, I mean, anti-Semitism is a feature of some kinds of um, Islamic rhetoric. Gosh, the minute you start talking about this, you're walking minefields, right? But um, <laughs> politicized right. Islam, you know, I, um, uh, I was very intrigued by, um, something that Rabbi Eric Yoffe said when, you know, and let's just preface this, there was this historic events, and I was actually at the Union of Reform Judaism convention when Ingrid Matson spoke, the president of the Islamic Society of North America, and you know, this is an historic event, and before that, Rabbi Eric Yoffe had been at the Islamic Society of North America convention, and um, he talked about Jews, um, so I mean, so there is the specter of anti-Semitism globally, um, but he made another kind of connection entirely. He talked about Jews as a once persecuted minority in countries um, that, that Judy, Jews know this experience of being uh, a minority where anti-Semitism was enforced and that, that that gives them a certain special perspective to understand some of the plight of um, Muslims today um, who are 
who are suffering from the, um, I don't know, what do you want to say, um, you know, the, the effects, um, we're kind of inheriting some of the effects of some of these things that happen in the name of Islam. I, I, I very much was inspired by Rabbi Yafi and Ingrid Madsen speaking mm-hmm. at those conventions. I think that that's so, such a huge outreached hand where it sometimes there there hasn't been that hand, and I think that that's really beautiful. And I I think this connects to back to Heschel and back to the ideas of otherness that our experience, you know, as Jews coming to this country at different points through history, and that experience of trying to build our build our lives and our institutions definitely gives us perspective and experience that can be, you know helpful in any way to other communities like the Muslim community mm-hmm. who are coming to this country. Um, but I think that's sort of true, and I, and I think it's important to remember that Muslims have been in this country since slaves were brought over. Right. And that mm. I think at some times in these conversations, I'm I'm shocked that some people just that I interact with think that, you know, there were no Muslims in the U.S. until September 11th right. and that it's a new thing. And that's always, I mean, again, I, the blessing of growing up in D.C. where there there was everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that um, it's I think that it's it's important that we share our experience and we share lessons learned and also sort of recognize the historical context that we're that we're interacting with Mm -hmm. yeah and I think it's essential to recognize um you know the that what Rabbi Yafi and so many others are doing is is it's cutting edge in the sense of like not many people agree with it right um and you know for him to say you know anti-semitism and islamophobia are equally like wrong um is a huge thing especially since he has a lot of heat on him from so many other organizations um and i mean he's not the only one i mean you have you know with the twinnings project it's brought all sorts of heat um and at the same time you know we welcome the heat because at least we're having the conversation okay um but at the same time like you know it's people are speaking out but it's taking a lot and they need support from from you know all over to to let them know that you know people do indeed like not only agree but are willing to to back them up and i think that goes back to to sort of the idea of pluralism lived and experienced that both um rabbi yafi and ingrid madsen are doing things that i I'm sure that not everyone in their organization feels comfortable with yet, right, and I'm right. sure there's some messiness there. But I think there's that 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 taking in of all the different perspectives at the table and still deciding to make a really courageous, hopeful step, mm-hmm. a really big step, I think is really admirable and really exciting. Yeah. I remember a conversation I had in the last year or so with a, a British um, author named Ed Hussein who wrote a book called The Islamist. He was um, like third generation Pakistani British and um, was kind of drawn almost all the way into a very politicized extremist group and got out but he talked about how from that vantage point of Western Europe um, looking at this twinning project in the in the US was such an encouragement to him that it, he felt that it was setting such an kind of as you said really cutting edge <laughs> example mm-hmm. um, for people looking at the U.S. from other places and struggling with all kinds of um, dynamics in their own cultures. Mm -hmm. I think something that's also exciting about the Twinnings Projects, a different way that connects to our work with our Newground Fellows as alumni, is that there's really this potential for a ripple effect. These, uh, These fellows that have experienced what it means to be 
a circle, a, just a circle of people, of random Muslims and Jews who are now really a tight circle of friends, what it means to help that ripple effect happen and what it means for them to go out in their, to their mosques and their synagogues and keep on talking and keep on encouraging others to talk. And I think that very much connects to, to the work of the Twinnings Project. Now, I, I, I was looking, I believe, at bios of some of your fellows and I think what struck me um, is also something that struck me at that um, event at, of the Interfaith Youth Corps, where I first met the two of you, um, which is that the people who are involved are not, for the most part, going to become religious leaders. They're not training to be clergy people, right? They are, I mean, some of them are, but they are um, in IT and wealth management and entertainment and law and engineering. Um, this is not about... Um, and I think something else that is distinguishing the work your generation is doing is it's it's not about religion or religious identity in a compartment. It's about mm -hmm. these things finding a fuller expression in every sphere of life, a fuller and healthier um, expression. Is, would, is, would you agree with that or how would you, how do you see I, that? I think what's so exciting about our new grand fellows is we really make an effort to to mirror the diversity of our communities in mm -hmm. the diversity of our fellows. So we have, you know, a few who are training to be clergy, but not at all a majority. Mm -hmm. And the rest, as you said, doctors, lawyers, people in the financial industry, teachers, graduate students, and also, you know, f people from all who ethnically are, you know, Pakistani or Indian or, or from different countries in the Arab world converts, Jews that are from, you know, Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, people from a very wide variety. Okay. And I think these are the people that while they might not be, perf while it might not be their main profession, these are the people that are sitting on boards and advisory councils of major Muslim and Jewish institutions. And these are the people that are going to be helping really shape the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that knowing that they have the relationships that they have built through the New Ground Fellowship and knowing that they have that experience of kind of that cooperative, that cooperative interfaith experience and bringing that into their work for the years to come, I think is really exciting. One of the most exciting events for me of the past few months, um, excuse me if I'm getting the timing wrong, but we had a fellow who was, went to the UN Conference on Racism in Geneva applied applied to go with the delegation and and was and was accepted partially because of his experience in Newground and how they thought oh if he can do this then he can interact with a conflictual a pretty a pretty heated and contentious environment and mm -hmm. I can't tell you how much time I sent I spent sitting with him and on the phone in Aziza is yes. <laughs> nodding in agreement and he said again and again how do I bring the spirit of Newground to such a divided in such an adversarial context you know, mm -hmm. how do I do that? Because mm -hmm. I know that's what what it what it needs. And um, one of the things that we, him and I spoke a lot about was this idea, which comes from an Israeli peace activist, is we refuse to be enemies, and we're just going to go into a situation with that in our mind. Mm -hmm. I refuse to be enemies. And what does it mean to go in to this very heated, contentious situation and really go in with an open hand? And does not, but does not mean enemies um, not necessarily imply that there's not still conflict, that there's not I still think, disagreement. And I think that's it. I think there's still conflict and there's still agreement, but there's a willingness to hear 
Mm-hmm. And there's a willingness to understand, and there's a willingness just to sit at the table across from each other. And I think that that, from what I from what I read and heard about the the reports from Durban, that was very hard for people to do, not just to mm-hmm. yell across mm-hmm. the room, but to actually but say, <laughs> "Let's let's sit down together. Mm-hmm. What are what are your real needs and interests in this situation? What are you trying to do? Mm-hmm. This is where I'm coming from. You know, what an amazing thing that so many different people are in one place." talking about such a critical issue how can we or so many critical issues how can we move constructively forward together and how can we how can we do that together and so I think that our alumni are really people that are going to continue to make change I think in, in Jewish settings and other se- Jewish and Muslim settings in in other settings and I think that um, this experience is just gonna is gonna help the the ripples of the pond continue outward Absolutely, because if we really want them to be living their faith and, like Malka said, mirror the community that they're actually living in, it was really essential to have a diverse group of people so that they weren't just clergy, but that they were they represented uh, basically the ra- colors of the rainbow in many different ways, whether mm-hmm. it was professionally or even right. religiously. Like right. We very intentionally made sure that we had modern Orthodox Jews with construct uh, con- sorry conservative and reform in addition to um, uh, not only Sunni, Shia, but also Ismaili um, and, you know, and and Sufi. And so we really have really intentionally made sure that people um, represent different communities so that they can go back into those communities and bring their new relationships um, and make presentations and have public events um, so that this becomes part of a, a much larger public conversation. And I think that speaks to the intra-faith that work that mm-hmm. we do, which is something that's often left out of the the interfaith world, is what right. does it mean to really talk to people of the same religion? I remember a fellow saying to me, I, a Jewish fellow saying, I definitely would never have met these Muslims, but let me tell you, I definitely wouldn't have ever met these Jews. <laughs> and that you, right. even in our... <laughs> so some of the encounter and the curiosity ends up also being with the people in the group of their own faith, of their own tradition. Oh, definitely. Um, again, going back to the butcher paper in a community in a community center in Los Angeles, we explored the question together of, what do you feel that those of the other faith most need to know about your faith? So what are those of the other faith most need to know about your faith? Right. And the Muslims and Jews were on you know, different ends of, of the classroom and had to come up with some sort of presentation to the other group. Mm-hmm. And the old, you know, the old saying is three Jews, you know, 30 opinions. And <laughs> right. <laughs> the fellow's first question to me was, oh, we don't have to agree, do we? And I said, no, of course not, but you need to explain why you don't, you know, you need to explain it. It can't just be, oh, we don't agree, so we don't even need to talk right. to each other because I'm, I I practice this way and you don't practice at all according to my definition. But no, you actually have to explain and explore what the differences are and what they ended up doing on this big, this big sheet of paper. They put a big circle in the middle that said Jew. And off of that, they each kind of claimed their own corner. And on one on one end, there was Torah, Israel, family, God. On another end, Sandy Koufax, Woody Allen, bagels. <laughs> on another end, <laughs> cashews, Jufis. Um, Jufis are Jewish Sufis. Cashews are Catholic Jews. Was sort of every different uh, multi-religious mm-hmm. combination. That there could be uh, Jew booze, right? Uh, 
and uh, you know on another end there was um, there was a map of Israel that said falafel kibbutz work and so really the idea was to lay lay it all out what it, what does it mean to be what does it mean what does it mean to be Jewish today and look at all the differences and some of the similarities that exist within this within this group and then you know think about how you're gonna present that to the rest and I have to say it was it was very fun mm -hmm. but there was definitely some nail biting about how are we gonna right. how are we gonna talk about these differences how, yes. do you remember and, the Muslim uh, uh, counterpart to that. Oh yes, like um, like this is actually one of the most memorable sessions, okay. no matter what group we do it with, <laughs> because the Muslims initially start with the concept of unity. They're like, we have to provide a united narrative <laughs> okay. on exactly how to present Islam, right? And they're like, because we cannot be not united, okay. and they. Uh, and usually each group always have to, has to overcome that first before they can actually start writing. Um, and so they, they try to hash it out back and forth and back and forth. And um, it's, it's really an eye-opening experience because they realize they're like, wow, how are we supposed to talk to um, Jews about like Israel, Palestine and gender and all this other stuff? Well, we can't even agree on how to present our own religion. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that they see the religion in so many different lights so, like, for the example, in one of our first groups, like, one person was really, like, dug her heels in and said, it has to be the five pillars and that's it. <laughs> um, and then the rest of them were like, well, you know, how can we, like, put in other things like living faith and, like, doing good works and, and, and other things um, and, and bring in some scripture. And so it took some back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, but then finally they all agreed, okay, fine, we can list the five pillars and we can list other things. And then they presented it as one uh, larger uh, kind of presentation. But it took a lot to get to that point. So I think that this story you've just told illustrates something that one of you said early on in our conversation that I think a lot of people wouldn't understand. Something else that gets hidden by these terms interfaith, which is you said that someone who came out of your program said, really, this is about what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Because mm -hmm. there is this paradox of interfaith work when it's really profound that not only do people come to know the other they get to know themselves better. I think this was a, I think definitely for a lot of our Jewish fellows, this was a real surprise that they came in because they thought, oh, I want to talk about politics <laughs> with the Muslim community. I want to do this. And I can't tell you how many of them I see and say, so I joined a synagogue <laughs> or I've been celebrating Shabbat at home now. Because we another another moment of the intra-faith work is in preparation for our weekend retreat. We have the Muslim fellows get together and the Jewish fellows get together and have to plan a way to explain their prayer rituals to each other. And when I say their, it's a little bit of a false idea that they all pray in the same way. Right. Because they don't. Um, and so that was another moment where, you know, one of the Jewish fellows said to me, I haven't lit Shabbat candles since I was, you know, six years old at my grandmother's house. Can I really do this? And really, um, it's a real blessing and a real honor, the role of the facilitators just trying to help my role. And, you know, we're just trying to help the process move along. So saying, yes, you can really do this if this is the part of the ritual that you want to explain. And um, I remember how beautiful it was when 
she said to me, well, I, I just want to light the candles because that's, that's what I remember. Mm. Like, that's mm. what I remember being what my grandmother did. And I have, you know, I have a lot of love and warmth attached to that memory. So I'll do that part. And watching the Jews try to negotiate separating out the pieces and who's comfortable with what part and who believes in one part and are you comfortable doing something that you don't believe in or would you rather just explain it and um, I think that that's such a such a meaningful conversation that a lot of times we don't get to have in our day-to-day lives Mm. because we tend to be with people that are similar to us in some ways and so um, or there's an assumption of similarity that's not questioned maybe and I think I think it's much more thank you about about that assumption and mm-hmm. I the the way that they led it was so beautiful and one of the fellows said I just want to do ningoons and ningoons are wordless melodies that are often sung in prayer times in the Jewish tradition and all he did was lead beautiful ningoons and everyone loved it because that was the piece of Shabbat that touched his heart. Mm. Um, Yes. I mean, this is actually a very eye-opening um, activity also. Because, like, from the Muslim perspective, all the Muslims think they have it all figured out. Um, and then you put them in a room and you ask them to lead prayer. And all of a sudden, um, the Sunnis uh, are usually confronted with this idea that their prayer isn't the only prayer. Mm. Um, that Ismailis have a completely... that it's that is just different. Um, and that it's not exactly what they had in mind. Mm. Um, and so the Muslims who think that initially they start out with very specific ideas um, really get challenged um, in that, you know, there's, there's a lot of differences even within, within Islam, um, whether it's Sunni, Shia, and then the different branches of each. Um, and what's really exciting is, is usually there's so much growth because, you know, you you start off not knowing very much thinking that you know a lot and then all of a sudden <laughs> like the story it gets of life on isn't you. it right <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> exactly um and so and i think that's why it, it makes it so eye-opening because all of a sudden you realize that there's so much more out there hmm. um i remember speaking with a rabbi who works with the union of reform judaism and he'd been involved in some of the meetings and conversations around this alliance um, with the Islamic Society of North America. And I remember him saying that um, while they had a long history of uh, interfaith work with Christians, you know, this was new territory, and that um, one of the things he was shocked to find was that he felt so much more, that the Muslim world felt so much more familiar (laughs) Mm. than the Christian universe that he thought that he was you know, very comfortable in, and this would be a whole new un- uncomfortable experience. He said he felt like it, like it was a parallel universe. And there are some parallels between Islam and Judaism in the U.S. Um, that are not so much there for Christians, at least these days. You know, there, there's an immigrant component, and there's also the language of the faith, um, yes. right, which, which the traditions have cleaved to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if that's also something that either of you have thought about, um, or is that something people experience? Oh, absolutely. And actually, when they first start the program, they're focusing on all of those similarities because they have a natural gravitation. Just because we have so many like similarities in language, like the concept of sadaka and like giving, um, giving alms, giving to the poor, mm-hmm. um, and, and setting aside that money. and 
the importance of not eating pork. Like, I think mm-hmm. both of our populations will be forever obsessed with that. And <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you know, Muslims feel safe eating in a Jewish household just because they know that no matter what, they're not going to be served pork and that, you know, the, the, the dietary restrictions are going to be adhered to. And right. that halal, like, people who strictly eat halal, which means that they will only eat, like, not only not eat pork, but eat meat that was... Um, uh, killed in this very specific way um, in the name of God. Uh, they can actually eat from a kosher butcher as well. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's just so much that, that, that they can draw from, from the similarities. Right, and some and of it's really have, mundane and, and some yes. of it's more lofty, but it's all the way through. Mm-hmm, exactly. There, there's another joke which has gone around new ground about just being many people not being so so far along in terms of immigration in their families and there's been a joke that goes around around that many people have been set the joke that they've been sat down by their parents and said so you have two choices you can be a doctor or a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) and the joke is that sometimes engineer is thrown in there that people feel like family that there's a very similar a similar sense of a (laughs) devotion and um closeness mm. to family and a real commitment yeah. and that family is really the center and more of and an intergenerational th- com- component i think yes yes mm-hmm. and honestly like you know once you get to know the other like and, and how m- the similarities i start to question him like you know i'm kind of jealous i really like the idea of having shabbat and right. like <laughs> you know having all of saturday when i'm, I'm not going to be have i'm not going to have to work at all mm. um and instead just focus on what's important in life family and spirituality mm-hmm. and we um this past year launched a pilot program with hebrew union college which is the reform movement seminary and uh, University of Southern California and the Center for Jewish-Muslim Engagement, which was a a parallel text study program, which was a a different project in terms of it engaged uh, a different span of the community, very multi-generational, and we had 24 24 participants go through five sessions of studying parallel text together, studying about, you know, our common prophet Moses and studying about uh, religious law and authority and getting into dialogue and conversation about that together. And I think that different, I think that that using text as a basis too was tremendously Mm. meaningful for people in terms of their own both personal evolution, but also in terms of their religious learning. And and at the same time that there are these, um, these similarities and I mean, even in terms of text, there, there are shared narratives, right? And characters. Um, there's also, though, especially if you look at these communities in the in North America, there are very dramatic differences between where, you know, and it's you know, I hate generalizations like this, but American Muslims, right? Where, where mm. American Muslims are at this point in history, and where American Jews are at this point in history. Um, and I wonder, and and the reality of American Muslims is very has been very much, uh, you know, shaped, affected by September 11th, by events in the world, and um, I don't know. So I just wonder: Are you also are these disparities in in the different challenges facing the two communities um, writ large? Do these does do, does this present challenges to the work you're doing? Is this something you're very aware of? 
No, absolutely. Um, like you said, both communities are just in different places. Yeah. I mean, the Muslim community is, is split, honestly, um, in different ways. Like, the African Americans have actually been around uh, longer than any of us. Um, and they have, like, completely different institutions. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, uh, then there's also this, like, second, maybe first, second, and third generation of this immigrant population of Muslims that have come in from from a, a wide range of different countries. And so we're dealing with those kinds of, of the tension between one, one generation and the other. Mm -hmm. um, while I think Jewish communities um, are are several steps ahead in that regard um, just because the they're just in different places they maybe came over here earlier they started establishing institutions not only in the United States earlier than Muslim institutions but also like in Europe and they were used to 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 and perfected the you know structure and um, and and just making institutions that would help provide for the community right. and Muslims are barely scratching the surface like you've got several institutions that are maybe say 20 years old um, and but that's the you know the oldest um, right, right. I mean Isna I think is older than that but there's definitely still a lot more building an infrastructure that's taking place but it's still in the building process okay and so our goals are are somewhat as communities are a little bit different like you know as with any immigrant population um, we we're dealing with issues of Islamophobia mm -hmm. um, and I mean xenophobia is just something that is a part of being an immigrant in another country um, and so that's that's very real. And so a lot of the money that comes from you know Muslim institutions, they want to go to philanthropic needs or to defend things like Islamophobia. And so um, it can at times be challenging to to raise money um, from you know Muslim donors um, just because of the the priorities of the different communities. Well, I think uh, Jewish institutions are much more advanced and foundations have been around for, for a much longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, I believe that Islam, that, Amer that the number of American Muslims, I mean, it is equivalent to the number of American Jews or, or has surpassed it. Um, but there's, there is, yeah, this much more visible, established presence um, in American society. Um, that, as you say, I mean, <laughs> there were a lot of people on September 11th who didn't, hadn't thought about Islam or American Muslims mm. until that moment. Um, we don't have a lot of time. I feel like there's so much we could talk about. I want to run something by the two of you, um, just on the basis of all the work you've done and the perspective you have on this. You know, in these last years, you'll often have very erudite commentaries by very smart people. Um, suggesting that uh, peace in the world and that the future well-being of the planet is going to depend on um, these monotheistic traditions um, giving up their exclusive truth claims. Mm. Um, and I wonder how the two of you think about that. Um, how do you respond to that? Because I think that in fact, the distinctive truth claims are also a part of identity, the identity that you're working with. So is it, are the truth claims themselves an obstacle? Or, you know, would you phrase that differently or see it differently? Or would you agree with it? <laughs> <laughs> I think about, and I know, Krista, this is something you write about um, in your book, I think about the big middle. 
Yeah. The vast middle, yeah. yeah. The vast middle, exactly. Yeah. And I think that um I think that that is where most people are. And I think that the attachment to these truth claims in a lot of ways are where the two ends are. And I think the more that we can we can be in the middle, which I know again is going back to being in an uncertain and a messy place, but I really think is where most people are. Um, I think that that is where that is where we'll find more of the answers, and I think that that's for me personally part of the change that I've gone through in being, you know, in being a part of this program for the past over three years now, has been being comfortable with the uncertainty. Mm. And what that um, and what that means, and I also think that having sort of changed since the days of being um, being more of a more of a hardcore activist, I think that the solutions to these complex, multi-layered problems that we're facing locally and domestically and internationally right now are very creative and very interdisciplinary. Hmm. I mean, I think hmm. that we need everybody to be there at the table. I mean, not everybody, but yeah. I think we need both <laughs> ends mm-hmm. and people from the middle. And I think that that's where the most kind of innovative solutions are going to come from. And um, yeah. Mm. You know, um, I, I think uh, Ali Abu Awad, um, an individual you've had on your show yes, before, mm-hmm. um, said said it really well and he didn't I, w- I would substitute a word it's not about being right um, it's about being honest and I would substitute right. the word truth for right right because um, if it's always about being right or about being on the side of well this is the truth and that's it um, then we're really not ever gonna get anywhere mm-hmm. um, it's about being honest with each with ourselves and with each other and to truly evolve to a genuine place of where respect can exist and flourish. Um, this is something that I really struggled with for a long time as a child. Just, you know, you know, do I, could I really respect my mother if I really thought that mm, right. she was going to be going to hell all the time? Your Christian um, mother, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and I finally, finally, like after several years came to a place where I can really respect her as an individual um, for her faith. Um, and and respect the Christian faith, mm-hmm. and so it's not about the exclusivist theology that I so like held on to so tightly when I was younger. But it I, was it's more also about not about giving up a strong identity of your own. Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. You don't have to give up who you are in order to embrace somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's actually probably one of the strongest lessons we've learned through Newground is that you don't have to be giving up anything about being Palestinian or about being Muslim in order to engage in this conflict. Instead, mm-hmm. it's actually about being able to share your identity in a very succinct and and truthful way. Um, so that you can both grow together as a group with with the other people at the table. How do you, um, how do the two of you think about impact and why your work matters? I mean, uh, it's hard. It's hard now to see at a global level, at a geopolitical level, how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, can or will be resolved. It's there's new crisis w- with Iran. Um, that's on the mind of both of your communities. Um, you know, do you imagine that what you're doing in Los Angeles with 10 or 20 people at a time um, might 
in some way affect that, or does does that not matter? Is that not the point? I mean, how do you think about that? I mean, ultimately, our, our fates are really intertwined. I mean, our fates are intertwined. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whether Both. it's here or there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, we, we, we really have to be paying attention to what's going on everywhere because um, we're really impacted. Um, and if we if we're really going to be able to make change, then we have to start in our own backyard. Um, and like Maka said earlier, I mean, these are, are young leaders in their own right. They, they're already leaders before they get to us. Right. And so they're, they're sitting on boards of institutions. They're, they're active citizens. Um, and the ripples, uh, you know, you start them small, but then they grow much larger and, and they have a much bigger impact. And because American Muslims and American Jews have a strong uh, stake, really, in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, I w- we would dare to say that, that yes, um, it would definitely influence at least the conversation in many different ways, especially in terms of like how money is delivered to different places, mm. like whether people are active in different organizations. Mm. I, I really I really echo Aziza's sentiment, and I really go back to the interdependence that I learned as a child so strongly, and that, you know, our diaspora communities greatly influence greatly influence what happens in our in our you know in our quote home countries around the world and I think that um, there's a hearts and minds element to Newground which I think is very powerful in terms of whether it's about reading the newspaper and seeing an article about something that happened in a Palestinian village and you know picking up the phone and calling a Newgrounder and saying did this affect your family what does this mean or even if you're a little bit shy and you're not picking up the phone, you read the article with more compassionate eyes. You have you have faces and voices to attach to You have to faces that. and voices, and I think that the other piece is that yes, the connection to the to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also recognizing the ethnic diversity that we have fellows that care deeply about Kashmir mm. and about issues mm. between mm-hmm. India and Pakistan. Right. We have a lot of fellows who care deeply um, about Iran, and we have fellows who are invested in redevelopment in Eastern and Central Europe. And that, I think that goes back to the notion of what it means to be Muslim and Jewish is in America and in the world today is that we have heartstrings spread all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that understanding what those connections are and building off them, I think is very, very important. And I also think that the the events that happen, whether it be in Iraq or whether it be um in Israel and Palestine, it really brings people into the circle. And it brings people again back into the sacred circle of chairs that they want to engage in something that's local, that's hopeful, that has that ripple effect, and that helps them understand themselves better Mm. and helps them thus understand the world better. Mm. Well, I think that's great. I think we're out. Are we out of time, Mitch? No. Okay. Okay. Can we keep you for a few more minutes of course sure. as is long really, as you want really, <laughs> this is really <laughs> really yes. wonderful okay couple so questions we have, mm-hmm. sorry yeah did you, you go um i i have i have one thing okay but okay you want something you want to okay. say okay it, is that okay yeah sure mm-hmm. okay um I think something that really happens when this circle of chairs, circle of people transforms into a circle of friends uh, we really felt in probably our most challenging time running this project. And I think it's important to talk about the hopefulness and the opportunity and the blessing of being able to work 
um, work on this, but I think it's also important to hit on some of the challenges is this past year we had a fellow, um, a fellow die in the middle of the program. And it was, um, it was incredibly, um, incredibly personally painful. He was really a linchpin of that circle Mm -hmm. and was one of the kindest people I've ever met and funniest people I've ever met. And I really think that that amazing transformation into a circle of friends is that the New Ground Fellows ended up really being the communal container for the grief Mm. in the community. Mm. They right away, as soon as they heard, they organized this communal gathering. They called his parents, one of his Muslim friends called his family's rabbi Mm. which I think was probably quite an unexpected (laughs) call. And that they really came together in such a powerful way to say, you know, we're a group of people who are very different but who care very deeply about each other and and um, and about the world. And this is something really painful that just happened locally. And we want to help, help the community and help really create the space for people to grieve and to remember and to celebrate and I was so moved by how they came together and so quickly and so organized mm. and so thoughtfully to everyone in the family and everyone in his community and I that was one of these very unexpected painful moments where I um, was really humbled to have the opportunity mm. to work on this project because okay, yeah. they, they did like mobilize like the day after he had passed. They heard it, that he had passed away. Um, they had a massive memorial service um, mm. on the beach where he had held another picnic gathering with them right uh-huh. before he went on vacation. Um, and we had a good, like, almost over 200 people there. And, you know, it was amazing how they were able to mobilize so many people so quickly, um, but also to, like, make sure that they lended support to the family um, because they we actually had to they had to fly the body in from overseas oh, um, and so they put together a fund to make sure that his family would get some supplemental help um, with all the major expenses that they were going to incur yeah. um, but that you know it was about them bonding also together as a family and um, it's definitely fused them together um, Muslims and Jews, like just all the way across the table. Yeah. And I think that it was one of those strange moments where, because of a similarity in our faith in terms of grieving and death rituals, that everyone got it right away that oh, they needed to raise money for the body to get back because in both of our faiths, the body needs to be buried quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a short time frame for that. And I think that the way that all came together was really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. I'm going to be quiet for just a minute while I listen from behind the glass. I think I'll just do that in script. Okay. Okay. You want them to just say that? I don't. I don't think we're gonna do it. Um. Okay. All right. Um, could you just give a, a basic kind of description of 
of your project together of what happens you know we've we've mentioned the fellows but um you know just kind of a breakdown just in your own words what what your basic work is so it's a it's a good year long uh process where we ask individuals to apply to a program um that's an intensive fellowship where we uh, bring together an equal number of Muslims and Jews who are accepted into the program, and they um, are represent a wide diversity from within their own communities. Um, and they come together in very intensive, structured dialogue um, for a good 10 months to a year, um, where they're talking about in, uh, issues of uh, identity, uh, pluralism, um, honest conversations, but um, also, also Israel-Palestine um, and all sorts of other like dif- different uh, conversations, issues that come up in modern day life. I'm sorry, that didn't come out right. No, that's okay. <laughs> I, think I'll, I think I'll probably be explaining this anyway, just in script, and, and then we'll be okay. talking about it's, it. It's a, community, it's a community-based fellowship uh-huh. um, on, for dialogue and education for the Muslim and Jewish communities of Los Angeles. Okay. Um, just one question. Um, uh, have have the two of you ever had a conflict, a disagreement that um, that was important and that you had to work through? Well, in a lot of ways, our relationship is like an arranged marriage. Um, And I think we both got lucky. Not to speak for Aziza, but that's what I think. That uh, we both we both got lucky and I think that um, the first time I met Aziza she was saving me a parking space in Los Angeles which is really quite a thing to do in Los <laughs> Angeles um, in this very car dependent city and we were so thrilled to meet each other and we both moved from across the country to take on this project mm-hmm. and there was such a sense of love and excitement and shared experience and um, I think, again, like many relationships, arranged or not, that was at the beginning. And we definitely have faced some very hard challenges with taking these beautiful ideas of building meaningful and constructive relationships between Muslims and Jews and turning that into reality. And I also think, um, I think the other challenge that we really face, which is something that has helped me understand our new ground fellows better, is that we're both individuals, but we're also both community members. And so we come in with our individual experience, but I often also feel like we come in with sort of layers of community and pressures and questions and um, challenges on our backs. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that speaks to some of the ideas we spoke about earlier in terms of our communities being in different places and mm-hmm. the communal priorities being different, though we share a lot of common concern. Okay. And, yeah. I don't, I, I, could you just each say for me, just in case we need this in production, just, you know, say, this is Malka, this is Aziza, you know, in mm-hmm. your own voice. Sure. This is Aziza. This is Malka. Okay. Uh, sorry, Mitch. Yeah, I'm just going to give you a little bit more direction. Um, as if you were, like, about to say something, say, oh, and this is, this is Malka, and... Yeah. Oh, and this is Malka. Oh, and this is Aziza. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we're going to need to do this because it's, it's going to be too awkward. You sound alike, but that's okay. 
<laughs> I've had interviews where people complain because I tend to match my voice to people, especially if I'm sitting with them. People complain that they can't tell me from the person who's being interviewed. It's their Should problem. <laughs> it's a good conversation. <laughs> right. Should we try it right. again, or was that? Well, okay. Mitch says, well, just say it as though if you probably heard people do this on NPR, which is probably why we won't do it, but they might say, this is Malka, and then say your point. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. This is Malka, and I feel like there's a real power in the work of living and experiencing pluralism through community-based dialogue and You education. are a... Very good. Okay. All right, Aziza, let's see if you can do that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is Aziza, and if anything, this process has helped me in turn reflect in vulnerability as I ask the fellows to do the same. Okay, you guys have a great future. We already knew that. <laughs> this was really fun and wonderful. I'm so glad that we finally did it and that you're out there. And Thank you. Oh, thank you. We're so excited. Okay. This is like a dream for us. Oh, I can't. Okay. We're both pretty dedicated <laughs> listeners and definitely. And I have to say our fellows that Speaking of Faith comes up a lot in terms of people recommending oh, it that. to each other. Right. That's great. Well, we um, we will let you know what's happening and when this is going to air and all that. So um, thank you again. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Will we see you at the IFYC conference again? You know, I, I would really love to be there. I don't think I can, but um, maybe one of my colleagues will be there. I think somebody should be there because it's a great event. Wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. Well, right. thank you so much. It's yeah. such an honor, and uh, I look forward to knowing more when we're going to be on or what's happening. Yeah, you will, and I'm sure okay. our paths will cross again somewhere. Wonderful. All right, you Thanks take care. so Thanks. much. Right. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.